Carl Pilcher has had careers in both the Academy and in NASA management. His career began with bachelor's and doctoral degrees in chemistry from the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, respectively. While he was still a graduate student, he led scientific teams that discovered water ice in Saturn's rings and on three of Jupiter's Galilean satellites, including Europa, which is now a high-priority astrobiology exploration target because of its subsurface liquid water ocean. Upon receiving his PhD, he joined the Institute for Astronomy faculty at the University of Hawaii, where he discovered and analyzed weather on Neptune and participated in the discovery of methane ice on Pluto. He also conducted research on Jupiter's plasma torus and served as a member of the imaging team of NASA's Galileo mission to Jupiter. Astrobiology, I, I like to characterize it as the quest to understand the potential of the universe to harbor life beyond Earth. And when you think about all the different areas of knowledge that one has to bring together to really understand such a vast topic, the potential of the universe to harbor life beyond Earth, it requires many, many people from many, many diverse disciplines and traditions, including the humanities. I mean, these are, these are questions that were the subject of philosophy and theology prior to the 20th century. Dr. Pilcher became the NASA Astrobiology Institute Director in September of 2006, a position he held for several years until his recent retirement. Just last week, he gave a presentation on astrobiology here at CTI as part of our winter symposium. Near the end of that event, I had a chance to sit down with him for a conversation for the podcast. So here is me in conversation with former NASA Astrobiology Institute Director Carl Pilcher. Thanks for joining the conversation. Just to start off, I'd like to ask you to kind of talk a bit about your own research in astrobiology and how you got involved in the field. Well, I've been involved in the field, Josh, mainly as an administrator. Uh, one can argue that astrobiology as a new field had its origins in the uh, mid-1990s, in particular at a press conference that was held, I believe, on August 7th, 1996, at, in the auditorium at NASA headquarters in which a group of scientists, some of whom worked at NASA and some of whom worked at universities, uh, got up and said that they thought that they had found evidence of life in a meteorite from Mars, the famous Mars rock, also called ALH84001, for those who care about that kind of detail. And today, the community is pretty unanimous, although not quite unanimous, that there was, in fact, not evidence of life in that particular uh, meteorite, but it was a consciousness-raising event. It occurred just a few months after the first planets had been discovered around normal stars other than the sun. And it happened as well at a time when our understanding of the diversity of life had really come to a level of maturity that it had not had even as little as a decade before in the mid-1980s. And it was the confluence of this understanding, developing understanding of the diversity of life on Earth, the recognition that the suspicion that there were planets around other stars and that planets around other stars might be common 
that that suspicion was just beginning to be confirmed. And then suddenly this possibility that there might have been evidence of life in this meteorite from Mars, those all came together to bring about a consensus. And it was a remarkable consensus because it was a consensus between the political community, the scientific community, and I would argue the public as well, that this was the time to bring together all the elements of knowledge and society that had a role to play in addressing the profound questions that astrobiology addresses. What was the origin of life on Earth? Could life originate elsewhere? Did life originate elsewhere? So I was already in administrative roles at NASA at that time. I had been a researcher earlier in my career. And earlier in my career as a researcher, I wasn't so much thinking about astrobiology, but I was thinking a lot about water. Because it turns out that the universe really is a case of water, water everywhere. And that's the case for a very simple reason. Water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe by a factor of almost 2,000 relative to oxygen. The second most abundant element in the universe is helium, which doesn't form compounds. Oxygen is the third most abundant element in the universe, and carbon is the fourth, and oxygen is a little bit more than twice as abundant as carbon. So oxygen is a very reactive element. So in general, you find oxygen connected to something else, some other element. Well, given that hydrogen outnumbers oxygen in the universe by almost a factor of 2,000, and given that there's not enough carbon in the universe to soak up all the oxygen, what are you going to find? Wherever you look, pretty much, you're going to find the oxygen connected to hydrogen. So sometimes that can just be the radical OH. But in an awful lot of places, and particularly on planets rather than in interstellar space, it's going to be H2O. And so the universe really is a case of water, water everywhere, even places you wouldn't expect to find water like the planet Mercury, which is extremely hot. And even there, there's ice in shadowed craters at the poles of Mercury. So as part of my uh, PhD research, <clears throat> I studied the surface compositions of the Galilean satellites of Jupiter, the four large moons of Jupiter, which are to first order planet-sized bodies, the size of Earth's moon or, or uh, a little smaller than the planet, well, somewhat smaller than the planet Mercury, and studied their surface compositions. And what we found was that three of those Galilean satellites, the outer three, Europa, uh, Ganymede, and Callisto, all showed evidence of water ice on their surfaces. And what's more, Europa looked like it was covered virtually completely with water ice. At that time, this is back in the 1970s, our data were consistent with a model in which Europa was a, a frozen ice ball. So that turns out to be tremendously important for astrobiology, although that was not so much the thought I, I had in mind at the time. Uh, although even at the time, people were associating the presence of water with the presence of life. But of course, we were looking at solid water. Europa is covered uh, by water ice. 
And at the time, we did not suspect that beneath that surface of frozen ice was in fact a global ocean. And when the Galileo spacecraft got to Jupiter um, two decades later, we had evidence that in fact the ice on Europa's surface is probably a few kilometers thick, maybe 10 uh, or, or a few more kilometers at most. And in fact, underneath that frozen surface is a global ocean 100 kilometers deep, 60 miles deep, with as much water as all of Earth's oceans combined. And what's more, it has a salinity similar to the salinity of Earth's oceans, although the dominant salt is probably not sodium chloride, it's more likely magnesium sulfate. Uh, but that in many ways, the European Ocean bore some striking similarities to Earth's ocean. So it turned out that I was doing astrobiology even as a graduate student when I didn't know it, mm -hmm. in a sense. And that to me is, is one of the glories of astrobiology because Astrobiology, I, I, I like to characterize it as the quest to understand the potential of the universe to harbor life beyond Earth. And when you think about all the different areas of knowledge that one has to bring together to really understand such a vast topic, the potential of the universe to harbor life beyond Earth. It, it requires many, many people from many, many diverse disciplines and traditions, including the humanities. I mean, these are, these are questions that were the subject of philosophy and theology prior to the 20th century. In fact, prior to the middle of the 20th century, to a large degree. And so the fact that I was doing astrobiology and not knowing it is, I think, characteristic of uh, folks even today. There are many people who are doing things that are profoundly important to astrobiology, but may not be thinking of it in those terms. Hmm. Cosmologists, for example. There are some cosmologists who recognize the significance of their work for answering this question. And then there are other cosmologists who don't. Did someone point out to you that your work was relevant to astrobiology? Or well... <clears throat> At the time that, that I was actually an active researcher, uh, and, and my research career, kind of the transition from research to administration happened for me in the, uh, between the mid-80s and, and 1990 or so. Uh, I, I think I was aware of, of the implications of finding water in different places in the solar system because we, we found water elsewhere, Saturn's rings, for example. Uh, but water in Saturn's rings doesn't really have too much of an astrobiological significance uh, because you know these are small particles and, and they're uh, particles that exist in a vacuum. It's different when you find ice on the surface of a planetary body, but at that time we thought, well, Europa doesn't have an atmosphere. And so if it's just an ice ball, if it's just ice and then underneath the ice is rock and ice, then, well, that you know may not be so important from the standpoint of life. <clears throat> Uh, we didn't know uh, back in the 70s that we were dealing with the global ocean. <clears throat> so when 
the discovery that Europa had a geologically young surface, and, and that was a discovery that really came uh, from, there was hints of it from the Voyager mission, but then it was a Galileo mission that arrived at Jupiter in uh, December 1995, if I remember correctly, that really nailed that down. Uh, Europa has a geologically young surface, as evidenced by the lack of impact craters, and geologically young means geologically active. And the um, uh, the discovery, both the prediction and discovery of the liquid water ocean, then really confirmed that the study of Europa is very much a study uh, that is central to astrobiology. And today, of course, Europa uh, is one of the primary astrobiological targets in the solar system. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you got your first interest in science and maybe if there's any relevance of that for how you think about the public interest in science. My first interest in science goes back probably to middle school or maybe the very beginning of high school and I was rather young <clears throat> in high school. I graduated from high school at 16 and so uh, middle school, early high school, I was probably 12 or 13 and I just got fascinated with chemistry. And I'm not sure I can explain why I got fascinated with chemistry, but the idea that you could mix chemicals together and get something different than what you started with probably had something to do with it. Maybe there was a bit of an alchemist in me. and uh, So I, I just got very, very interested in that. And I happened to go to a high school, Brooklyn Technical High School in New York City, where one could, in effect, major in chemistry to the detriment of other aspects of my education, I, I have to acknowledge. Uh, one of which came, came to be very important later on, and, and I'll share that with you in a moment. So I took a lot of chemistry in high school and then uh, majored in chemistry in college at uh, the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, as it was called at the time. It's now a part of NYU. And it was while I was a senior in college that a longtime interest in science fiction sort of <clears throat> shifted over to an interest in space science. And this was 1967 that I was graduating. And quasars had been discovered just three years earlier in 1964. And I was reading in a science fiction magazine about quasars and how mysterious they were. And at that point, it wasn't even known with any certainty whether they uh, were phenomena in our galaxy or whether they were extragalactic phenomena. And reading all of this, uh, this science fact in a science fiction magazine just reignited in me uh, an older interest in space science. And so I'm now thinking, okay, I'm getting a degree in chemistry. How can I take that background and apply it to space science? Because I'd really somehow like to do that. And uh, there were a couple of false starts in that. And I wound up uh, doing a dissertation in planetary astronomy, doing infrared spectroscopy, using a new kind of infrared spectrometer, uh, an instrument that analyzes the light in the infrared portion of the spectrum uh, just uh, beyond the uh, portion of the spectrum that we can see with our eyes, the so-called heat part of the spectrum. And it 
turns out that in a portion of that part of the spectrum, there are spectral signatures of many molecules. In fact, most molecules have, have spectral signatures uh, in the infrared, and water, both in its gaseous as well as its solid form, uh, has spectral signatures there. And lo and behold, we put a new type of infrared spectrometer that was much more sensitive than uh, previous spectrometers, and we put it on a telescope at Kitt Peak, and it was low-hanging fruit. We were one of the first groups to have such a spectrometer and put it on a telescope and point it at the Galilean satellites, and um, there it was. So uh, that sort of started me in a career in astronomy. One, one aspect of my career has been that I have always been interested in a great many things. And so I went from being a chemist to being a, an astronomer. And I did so without ever taking an astronomy course. And this is not a, a way to do a career transition that I recommend to anyone. Uh, getting an education is, is always uh, a better way. And one of the other things I was very interested in and, and had been for some time is government um, international relations. And I was particularly interested in World War II uh, and the division of Europe and the division of Germany. So along the way, I decided that I really wanted to somehow incorporate international relations not in, into my work, not just as a scientist who could go and collaborate with European scientists, which I was doing already at the time, uh, but to do so somehow with, with from more of a governmental perspective. So I left my faculty position at the University of Hawaii, where I was doing this work, a lot of it uh, done from the observatory on Mauna Kea and came right here to Princeton and spent three years at the Woodrow Wilson School just down the street and um, got a, a marvelous education in social science and particularly in government and in international relations and then wound up going to work for NASA which was not part of the plan uh, but it just happened that way. Uh, got an offer to be the first permanent science director in what was then called the Office of Exploration that the astronaut Sally Ride set up after the loss of the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1986. And I joined that office in the fall of 1988. And the rest of my career I, I spent as an administrator in NASA and I gradually tailed off the, uh, uh, the research so I really haven't done much scientific research personally. Uh, over the last 25 years or so. So that brings me to, I believe it was August 7th, 1996, when this press conference happened. And at that time in my career, I had never taken a biology course. That was one of the sacrifices that I made to study all that chemistry in, in high school. It turned out I didn't take it in college either. And I thought, wow, this is this is going to be way too much fun not to be a part of. So I became a, a fairly serious student of biology and I discovered that as a chemist a lot of biology, particularly molecular biology, was accessible. 
because although the molecules are bizarrely complex to the mind of a chemist, uh, the principles by which those molecules are assembled and the principles by which they interact with one another are chemical principles. And so as a chemist, I found molecular biology accessible. I found some very good teachers in the community, microbiologists, uh, who uh, befriended me and contributed to my education, some wonderful courses at the Marine Biological Lab at Woods Hole, and uh, managed to develop enough of an understanding of, uh, of biology, uh, particularly um, molecular biology, that I could bring that to bear in combination with my knowledge of astronomy and planetary science and chemistry and some knowledge of government and policy and, and funding issues and I could bring that all together and that's what one needs in astrobiology. One needs to bring all of those things and many other things together. Uh, so I was able to bring some together personally and, and then had the, the fantastic opportunity to direct the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is charged officially by NASA with bringing all of these disciplines together uh, by bringing together people with all of this expertise. And for me, this was the, the, a dream. This was, this was the only job on earth I wanted at that point. And I was thrilled uh, to be able to spend basically a decade doing that. And uh, I continue to be thrilled to participate in events like the one that we are just concluding here today, where we bring together people from the scientific community of astrobiology together with people from the humanities communities of astrobiology, the writers, the theologians, the ethicists, the philosophers. And so these last two days for me have just been an absolute delight. What are some of the main sort of ideas you take away from, you know, literary uh, writers and religious thinkers and so on for this field? Well, Mary Doria Russell, of course, is is just high in my mind right now. I, I've just, I'm almost finished reading the, the second of her two right. books in the Sparrow uh, series. And her imagining how similar and yet how different sentient species can be uh, from humans is fascinating. Of course, in astrobiology, although we recognize SETI, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and technological signals from, uh, from civilizations around other stars, that, that is definitely a part of astrobiology. It's not the principal focus of astrobiology because there is a perspective that says that microbial life may be common in the universe. We don't know whether that's the case or not, but I could make an argument uh, that it might be. But that doesn't mean that technological civilizations are common, nor does it even mean that what we would call intelligent species are common. We don't know. Again, maybe, may not be. This is part of the excitement. So I tend to think about astrobiology in terms of microbial life more than, than sentient life. But Mary in The Sparrow and in Children of God puts together some of the theological challenges uh, of a first contact scenario 
uh, in a way that is is just uh, really kind of thrilling to experience in 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 reading her novel, and it it's. In, in a way, it, it broadens the concept of astrobiology and the potential implications of astrobiology. And of course, that's what fiction is all about. It's about creating alternative realities that aren't real. They are fictional by definition. And yet they provide a window to stimulate and, and open the imagination to, to other possibilities. Some of the discussions that we had here as well with, with theologians about uh, issues of uh, agency, for example, are another way of thinking about questions we do think about in astrobiology, which are questions of contingency versus necessity. So what is a necessary characteristic of life and what are contingent characteristics they happen by chance it, on, on a particular Thursday in Earth's history um, something happened and it could have happened some other way but it happened that way and four and a half or four billion years later here we are using only left-handed amino acids in our proteins you know could have been right-handed just didn't work out that way uh, so so there, there are connections between theological perspectives of agency and um, randomness uh, that are a mirror, I think, of the uh, questions that we ask about life in terms of necessity and, and contingency. Just as a kind of final question, do you have any further sort of issues that you were hoping to get out there on the table but you didn't have time for or further things you think you'll be gnawing on over the next uh, day or so on your way back home? One of the things that I think about a lot is how astrobiology can make yet greater contributions to society. Astrobiologists think very in a very interdisciplinary way and the deeper one is in astrobiology I think the more one is driven by necessity to, to interdisciplinary thinking. So I am led in the direction of thinking about how can astrobiology contribute in ways that most people haven't really thought about terribly much. Our founding director of the Astrobiology Institute was a physician named Barry Blumberg, Baruch Samuel Blumberg. Uh, Barry was a wonderful, wonderful human being, unfortunately passed away a few years. He also was a Nobel laureate, won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1976 for the discovery of the hepatitis B virus and development of the first vaccine. And he is credited with, through his work and through his perseverance after those initial discoveries and his perseverance throughout his lifetime, uh, with saving perhaps a billion lives because hepatitis B generally precedes uh, primary cancer of the liver. One of the questions that Barry always had in his mind is how can astrobiology contribute to medicine? And it's a question that has been in my mind, uh, both be stimulated by Barry's thinking and, and just a result of my own. 
And so I didn't get a chance to talk here about that connection. But there are, I think, some very important connections, particularly to cancer and cancer research. Because when you think about cancer, one way of thinking about it is that it is a failure of the mechanisms that enable us to be multicellular animals. What happens in cancer is that some of the regulatory processes that enable us to be multicellular, some of them go awry, but not all of them. Tumors are actually organs within our body. It's just that whereas our heart and our lungs and our other organs are all doing the things that they need to do to maintain the multicellular organism, this new organ that forms in our body with a bunch of cells that are cooperating, this, this is not each cell for himself. These cells are, are cooperating in a very, very effective way, but they are cooperating in an effective way to benefit this new organ, not to benefit the host organism. So we have a new multicellular organ in our body, but it resulted from the failure of mechanisms that evolved in evolution hundreds of millions of years ago to enable homeostatic multicellularity, that is to enable an, a multicellular organism to maintain the internal environment that it needs for its survival. So astrobiologists study the origin of animals and the origin of the regulatory mechanisms that enable animals to develop. And these are regulatory mechanisms that developed 500, 600, 700 million years ago. And we think that it is some of those, but not all of those mechanisms that fail in the state of cancer. So there's an interesting connection to be explored. And we didn't get a chance to talk about that here, but I'm glad I got a chance to bring that up in this podcast. Good point to end on and uh, something that really shows that there's a lot to be said for how a lot of different people with different interests and different concerns can find a place in astrobiology to uh, hook in and get interested in it. Indeed. So thanks a lot for being on the podcast and for being here this week, and I look forward to working with you in the future, I hope. Josh, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.